0: Welcome, everybody. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Liz. Welcome, everyone, to Women, Magic, and Power. I'm so excited for everyone to be able to listen to our brand new podcast. I'm so excited, too. This is going to be so much fun. So, um,
1: listeners, Olivia and I have been kicking around the idea of doing a podcast for a while, and we had all kinds of directions that we wanted to go in, and we finally decided on this one.
0: Yeah, we were talking about the different people that inspire us and we realized there's a lot of women around us and more that we'll get to know, hopefully, that have inspiring stories that we would love to share and hopefully inspire other people. Mm-hmm. And
1: we are going to talk with each of these women about their journeys through life, um, their spiritual journeys, how they dealt with obstacles they encountered. Um, and the ways that they were able to claim their power in a positive way and use it to make things better for other people.
0: Yeah, I think each and every one of these women have made a change in the world for somebody around them, right? So They've had an impact on people's lives.
1: Very much so. Very much so. So you'll hear more about us and our ideas as you listen over the weeks and months ahead. Um But today, you're going to hear the first episode that we recorded and bear with the first few minutes because it was a little awkward.
0: Yeah, we were nervous about that one, huh?
1: Microphones and all. But once it gets going, it's a really good conversation. And we're talking with Lynn Ferugia, who um, is a friend of ours here in Hopewell, New Jersey and Olivia's gonna tell you a little bit about her.
0: Yeah, she um, is a homeopath. She's also the owner of Chubby's Lanchonette, right in town, and the head of the Chubby's Project, an organization that helps people in need with anything they may need, but mostly meals. Um, She is someone that is always ready to help anyone around her. She has a good, interesting story as an outsider in a small town in New Jersey. And she also um, came full circle as she came back to the little town that she grew up in to help others. Mm -hmm. Enjoy.
2: Welcome, Lynn. Thank you.
1: So you were raised Catholic and you went to Georgetown University. How did your time studying with the Jesuits impact your spiritual practice and your ideas about social justice?
2: I think my ideas of social justice actually began when I was a child. My father grew up in Malta, which was colonized by the British for years and years. And he lived there while World War II was raging, he had to um, spend a few years in a cave with his sisters and brothers and his parents. So colonization and ways of governing were were talked about frequently. It was, for me, an, you know a normal everyday thing to think that, oh, some people are oppressed and some people are the oppressors. <laughs> so it was not so much social justice, just the way that it was. And so growing up, I always thought about the underdog and who, who has power and, and what one does with power. Growing up Catholic, um, for me, Catholicism was more a cultural um, experience. I had aunties who were nuns and uncles who were priests. And so it was um, much more of a family, you know, just what their roles were in the family. There was nothing... It wasn't like I was afraid of nuns or anything like that. Catholicism for me was, oh, we, we can do the rosary if someone is sick, we say a blessing before the meals, we, we thank God for things, and that God is on the side of the oppressed. So it wasn't so much me going to college that woke up my, my social justice.
0: Um, well, you did go um, to a, an orphanage in town right that Mm -hmm. was also a school and that was also catholic as well right
2: yeah so st michael's when we came here my mother was raised in an orphanage so she had fond memories of an orphanage she you know it was fine and it was run by catholics where she went to so when we moved here i was in first grade and the first thing they thought was to send me to the orphanage because that's what she knew and um and I thought it was fine. I didn't even, you know, I didn't think about it until other people were saying, oh, are you gonna be left there? And I, of course, I didn't know what an orphan was. I just thought you go there. Some people live there and some people go home <laughs> until I realized, oh my gosh, some people do stay there. And um, that was always the fear that I would be left there. But um, it was just sort of a, a way of, of living, you know, that God is, God is everywhere and God is at the orphanage to take care of the kids who had no parents. And And so I remember in third grade, there was um, some tragedy happened. And these three girls came to the orphanage. They had lost their parents, and their names were Faith, Hope, and Charity. And in that moment, I thought, wow, Faith, Hope, and Charity, they really need to live their their lives differently now without any parents. And um, they came in, and they stayed with us at the orphanage. I mean, I didn't live at the orphanage, but they were students there. And I remember in that moment, just thinking about how fragile life is, you know, that you could, everything could change. And I was nine years old. And I think at nine is when we all realize that we are mortal beings and anything could happen. And so in that moment, I thought, hmm, I wonder what's gonna happen. And they got adopted, thankfully, all together. And so then they left the orphanage and that was the end of that. But I think it was an important moment for me because I realized we were in town as immigrants in this small white working class, Farming community, and we were the odd ones. And um, and then my mother got sick and left when I was in fourth grade. And my crazy aunt came to raise us, who had the luncheonette, who um, who was not so well received in Hopewell, being that she was, what we, you know, she she was a lesbian, but she wasn't out in in those days. Um, but she kind of she looked like a man half the time. She was rough around the edges, and here she was raising three girls with my dad, who didn't speak great English. And it, it was an odd upbringing. So we didn't really fit in. So you know, I, could f- I knew about social justice because when you're on the outside, there's always a feeling of who's got the
0: power. Now considering that you were raised Catholic and you went to this Catholic school, orphanage, somehow, though, you were able to learn to look broader than, like, the Catholic, you know, mindset of, you know, obviously being on the outside had a lot to do with it, but there has to be, like, something either was innate within you, because... It's not the same for your sisters, right? Mm-hmm. But like some somewhere along the way, you were able to step out from you know the sin and the guilt and you right. know the Catholic mm-hmm. whole you know setup.
2: I think in Malta there. Um, so Malta has the oldest Neolithic temples in the world, goddess led beautiful temples, and so when I was a child. I would visit my relatives and they had pictures of the Virgin Mary and pictures of the, the goddess that lived in that temple, this round bodied woman who was just as beautiful as the Virgin Mary. So I always thought they went together, you know, like one informed the other. Hmm. I don't think I knew that consciously, but that's what I always thought. I thought, oh, we're, we pray to Mary and we were very Mary focused in my family. Very, very Mary focused. So knowing that this goddess in Malta was what informed the the community before religion you know before Catholicism was really important to me, I think you know not not knowing it consciously, but just knowing that these this, this goddess was always on the altar with the virgin, so um, we didn 't pray to the goddess, but we prayed to the Virgin, so I thought they were the same, I think when I was a child, you know they were just always there yeah and then as I grew older, I realized, oh wow. I went to Malta at 17 and saw the temples and lived you know, in Malta for three months when I was 17. And I realized, oh my gosh, you know, this Catholicism is very different than what Catholicism is in the US. You know, it's, it, it incorporates a way of being that is much more open. And of course, they had political views that were conservative, but their social views were much more liberal.
1: So I think one of the things that's so interesting in Catholicism is you have these dichotomies, right? And of the the Catholicism of the Vatican mm-hmm. and then the Catholicism of the people particularly in places that aren't western Europe, you have a much more syncretic faith, right? Where the faith that was indigenous mm-hmm. is Mixed in with the traditional Catholic faith in a very different kind of way, and you have this kind of lived faith that seems to me as a much more personal kind of thing as opposed to just going to church and standing when you're supposed to stand and saying the prayers Mm -hmm. and kneeling when you're supposed to kneel. Right, and there's ritual involved, but it's a much more personal kind of ritual, and it's often directed at you know um, local saints or mm-hmm. you know incorporate ideas of old matriarchal things. And um, I just think it's so interesting how this one faith is lived by all these different people. And you know, I was raised in a way in a church that was very rigid, and all I could see were the, th- the people that were excluded. Mm-hmm. And it was also much more cultural um, in our family, except for my grandmother. She was at church every day, but she was doing adorations, right? She was in mystic prayer, mm-hmm. and she was doing the rosary and praying to St. Jude for all the lost causes, and... Mm-hmm it's kind of amazing i think how women can operate within this structure that is so patriarchal and so and excludes them on so many levels and find a way to claim their own faith and power within that
0: Well, because I think there's something to be said, right? Like, this is not a, like, don't be a Catholic podcast. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can have your faith, you can have your religion, you can have your traditions and all of that. It's it's all about finding your own power and your Mm -hmm. own, like, magic. And I'm sure that for a lot of people out there, that's the path, right? But it's interesting to also be, like, being able to tap into those people that had to leave that path because the path wasn't made for them. And they had to Mm. find their own, you know, it's in a way kind of like breaking through the traditions and the walls and find your own, you know, voice and listen to it and intuition and be like, okay, for me to be more powerful or more in tuned or more in touch with who I am, I can't stay within these four walls, which Mm -hmm. I think in a way also allows for, you know, different people to, you know, shine and find their way. And ask, like other people that are inside of those four walls be like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I should step out and try it out. And maybe this, you know, will help other people to yeah. not be scared to go for it. Mm-hmm. I think and some people are happy to have the
1: walls mm-hmm. because they're comfortable. And wherever you find comfort is great.
2: hmm I think it's also a form of subversion in a way, you know, where I think women have subverted the system for years by forming their own prayer circles or doing what they want to do. They don't care if someone doesn't agree with them. You know, they just, my aunties would not have thought twice about getting together and having their own ceremony for something, even if it wasn't, you know, coming from a high holy place. They would still do whatever they wanted to do. And they, I don't think they needed permission. I don't think they ever thought they needed permission.
0: But that's a good influence in your life, like strong women, like role women. Right? Because I feel like the role model women, like if you don't have a strong, you know, mm-hmm. um, yes, no, go ahead. Well, because
1: the world still tells us that we need permission. Yeah. And so you have, to, you have to get past that. And say, you know what? I don't need permission. And so, have being raised by people who impart that to you early, I think, is amazing.
0: Yeah, because it's not for everybody. Like, it took me a long time to realize, and I still sometimes I'm like, wait, why am I like letting this, you know, be done to me? Like, not Mm -hmm. in an abusive way, but in like certain situations, I'm like, oh, boundaries. I can say no, or I don't have to agree to this, or you know. Um, yeah, I don't need permission to do certain things. You know, it's hard. It's, it's a a workout, you need to practice Mm -hmm. and keep doing it. And like, you know, so that it becomes like a muscle that like acts up it automatically without me having to think about it. Well, and I think
2: for me personally, I didn't have parents who knew what was going on. So there were no role models that had strict structures around us. So was kind of you know free-range parenting before it was free-range parenting so so it wasn't even that I had to break out of something I just knew I could try whatever and there was no there was no reason not to
0: well speaking of breaking out I do want to know why you chose um to become uh do you prefer naturopath naturopath homeopath homeopath now yeah and then I'm in New Jersey (laughs) Oh, mm-hmm. well, we'll we'll get into that in a minute. There but
2: are, There are lots of rules around what you call yourself in different states. Okay. So um, when I came to New Jersey, you couldn't be a naturopath. Um, you couldn't be a licensed naturopath when I first got here unless you had, um, what do you call it, you know, doctor's approval. So... And I love doing homeopathy, and I've been doing mostly homeopathy, and so I just decided to practice homeopathy and give advice and education about natural medicine and herbs and other things, vitamins, supplements.
0: And why not Western medicine?
2: Oh, that for sure for me is much more patriarchal and Catholic, small Catholic, (laughs) than alternative medicine, than a natural way of healing. I mean, I believe that the body has this innate sense of knowing what to do and sometimes it gets off course and it needs information to get it back on track. That can be natural, gentle, and just a little nudge instead of... um, Western medicine is based on the premise that we take away symptoms. If you have a fever, we give you aspirin, it takes away the fever. It doesn't increase your immune system, it doesn't aid in the body's um, building white blood cells, producing white blood cells, fighting infection which is what natural medicine does. We, you know, we believe that you give something to support the infection, you know, so the body that support the body so they can fight the
0: infection um, instead of suppressing infections or illness, whatever they may be. Do you have um, along your, I'm sure you do, and in fact, I know you do, but I want you to tell us um, patients that you've met that Western medicine failed them and you were able to get them to where they needed to be Yes. Um,
2: I think the people that I see come for all different reasons, Mm -hmm. and they come at different times in their lives when they need support, they need to be heard most of all, they need to have someone listen to their story. So what I do is I sit in my office, I listen to the story of someone who has been suffering. And I think in that very act, it's already healing. Mm -hmm. And then They leave, I give them a remedy, I give them something, some advice, whatever. But I think in that very act of listening to somebody, we don't do that enough in our culture. They begin to heal on their own. Then they take the remedy, they do whatever. And it doesn't matter if they're not healed completely, but they feel like they're on their path. And then they'll come back. Or they won't come back. But at least I know in that moment, many people will say,
0: just the conversation helped them to see what they needed to do. Well, and... As a patient myself, I will say that there is um, something very special about you in your office. Like when you are on your desk, asking the right questions because they're always the right questions, and you know finding your way through all the information that you're receiving from these people on the other side of your desk. Um, There's something very, you, I don't know that you know it, but I know it and I know Liz experienced it too. Um, There's something very special about how you kind of like tune everything out and just focus on the person in front of you. And, you know, you take your notes and you do your thing and you ask the right questions. And I know for, you know, firsthand that your remedies are on point. Like what you give me when I go see you to deal with whatever... I'm going through always gets me over whatever I'm going through, like it just helps a lot and you it's like something turns on mm-hmm. she's resting in her power that's correct yeah it's and and it's very powerful to um, experience it with you as you know someone that goes there for healing mm-hmm. um, it is a very healing experience because it yeah you it's not a secret. You're a scattered brain. <laughs> you know, it's not like if you know Lynn, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know Lynn, let me tell you, she uh-huh. writes notes in papers that like she puts in books in places. She like something comes to her, she writes it down and you know, runs around taking things to people's houses and running around, always doing errands for someone else, helping everyone out, and then. You sit in front of her in her office and it's very it's a very different person like she it's on let's hear it throw everything you have at me and i'll deal with it that's that's the attitude that you get
2: i think coming at this work in a non-judgmental open-minded way i mean mostly i'm curious i'm curious about what makes a person come to me, I'm curious about what their life has been like, I'm curious about what got them to this place in their life, and I'm curious about how I might be able to help them, and it's not really helping them, it's me seeing the divine in them. I think every person who comes to me is sitting there with the divine that maybe has the light dimmed a little bit and they haven't seen it for themselves, how they still have the divine in them and it has to be brought out, it has to be shown to them. And so if I can mirror to them their own beauty, their own specialness, their own uniqueness in this world, that's enough of a spark to get someone to start the healing. And to me, it is such a special place to be, to be honored in that way that they would share with me their life and be open and honest that I can just receive this information is quite like I think what the Greeks did, what the goddesses did in Malta at these Neolithic temples. They had these healing altars, and when I read about how they would do healing, is you know, people would lie on this limestone bench, and the sun, and it was um, it was placed at a specific place so that the sun would hit it at a certain angle at a certain time of day, and this is when the healing would happen. And in Greece, they had the altars, you know, the same kind of thing where you would lie there, and the information would come to the, to the whoever the, the healer was um, with dogs, cats, people, whatever. And I think being able to receive that information is the most important part. And so I try to make the office as comfortable as possible so that I can just be with the person as they reveal themselves. And in that revealing, I learn about myself, I learn about them, and there is this mutual healing that goes on. It's not me healing them really, it's them healing themselves.
0: Yeah. Do you feel? I mean, and this not powerful in the patriarchal way, but do you feel empowered? I guess, uh, for a better word that isn't powerful, when you're there, and not because you have power over, you know, the person across the desk, mm-hmm. but like, in the sense of like everything is where it should be. Well, it's the goosebumps feeling, right? So somebody comes
2: in. And they give me a tiny piece of information about themselves and somehow it fits into the puzzle that they've just explained about their situation and so then when that happens i feel excited that i have some information that may help them because they've revealed something that maybe no other doctor cared about nobody cared to listen about what happened when they were 15 or what happened two weeks ago or how something shocked them or how they ate some i don't know what it could be whatever that, sort of disordered their system. And so that's exciting to me. It doesn't feel like a power thing. It feels more, um, it, it feels more exciting. It feels more like, oh, I solved the puzzle. Like, I mean, maybe that's power. I don't know. It, it doesn't
0: feel like power, though, to me. It feels but more. I think because power has like a negative connotation. Sorry, yes, go ahead. No, on. I
1: think that um, we are so conditioned to view power as something hierarchical and something used to put ourselves above someone or in control of someone or something and yet working together can create more power than anything right and 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 you can see how we're all we all hedge with this idea of power and saying I'm powerful all hmm. right but but we really are right there is power in feeling that groundedness and that stillness and that rightness and working in concert with another person mm-hmm. and helping them feel powerful too
0: it yeah can I mean, be it, can, it
1: can be beautiful I just think you know we're, we're so again we're so conditioned yeah. to think of power as
0: oppressing somebody else exactly yeah, yeah. we don't
2: and we don't want to do that right
0: yeah, yeah particularly as women we don't want to do that
2: right Well, we want, and for me in particular, when I'm in my office, I want somebody to leave feeling that they've just gained some insight into their own situation and they've gained some power power, I think is the right word then in knowing how they're going to go forward and heal themselves. You know, they feel like they're in control again. And control, I guess, is um, how I hope that they leave like, oh, wait. They're in charge of their health, they're in charge of their story, they're in charge of what they're gonna get, how how they're gonna get it. And sometimes I'm only there to help them find the way to get it. You know, it's not even me that helps I mean I help them start on their path.
0: So Well and it's hard when you're, you know, going through either medical situations or emotional situations and, and it can be very lonely. And it can be, um, you know, hard to deal with, like, not having the answers or where to go with the answers. So, like, all of these things, I think when you arrive to your office, when someone arrives to your office and they find, first of all, oh, I'm not alone, right? Like, someone's actually listening to me, like you were saying, or, you know, um, she, you have this one thing that it's also, like, you know a lot about a lot of things so when people come there and they talk to you you may talk about what you know in homeopathic medicine but you also know a lot of Western medicine Mm -hmm. and you know a lot about emotional you know feelings and how people may be going through all these different stages and how that lodges in the body in different ways and so you can help them move forward just as you said, just by listening to them, but also because you know a lot and because for people, knowing that they're not alone and that someone can guide them on their way, it is powerful. I'm guessing it's also magical. It is.
2: What's, for me, the most exciting moment is when someone says to me, I've never told anyone this. I've been bulimic. I I take pills. I do this, I do that. I'm an addict and it's a secret. And I'm thinking, wow, for them to come and feel so comfortable that they can explore this part of themselves in a safe place is, you know, for me, just so, so perfect. It's the, it's the best day. And I can't, you know, in that moment, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I just know that for them to be able to say something like
0: that is healing. But it's interesting, right, because you also help a lot of people um people that are nonverbal mm-hmm. and that are in the spectrum and they don't have the ability to maybe express any of these things mm-hmm. and you're able to help them too so it's i think i have um i know this sounds crazy
2: but there is a certain intuitive nature that comes with sitting with people right to be open to every single thing to understand how energy moves how it um how it presents itself how Somebody's eyes will look one way, how they feel, you know, when I touch their hands, their movements, there's something that their body is expressing that needs to be healed, whether they can speak or not. Whether they're a baby, whether they're a horse, whether they're a dog, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a living creature. I'm there to receive it and to really go into whatever that energy is so that I can figure out
0: what I can do to help direct it in a positive way. And this is what I'm saying about you turning something on when you're in your office, which I know, you know, you <laughs> don't like to, like, you know, we're all staying humble and you're trying to, you know, keep your ego at check. And I understand all of that. But I'll tell you that something turns on. There's something about your abilities, which is your magic. This is what makes you, you, right? And not Liz or me. Like, this is Lynn and your abilities, which is... I guess what brings me to the next question, like, do you think there was like a guiding force through all of these things, like, or events that, like, you know, by serendipity or magic or whatever, made you into this path of becoming who you are and not a doctor, a Western, Mm -hmm. like, besides you know the patriarchal Mm -hmm. structure that we're not a fan of here.
2: (laughs) But I think. um... I think a couple things. I think in New Jersey, I have to be very careful with what I do because it is a much more mainstream place. You miss California. I miss the openness. I'm not sure if it's still open now, so many years later. But the, in New Jersey, Big Pharma holds a lot of people um, in, a, in a space of... Um, well, people trust Big Pharma here much more than they do on the West Coast, I think. Well, in San Francisco, anyway, when I was there. Um, I can't speak for now. But I think, you know, here in New Jersey, there's more of the sense of you have to prove something. You have to prove that you're doing something. And I'm working with nanomedicine, so there's no proving anything. It's energy medicine. And I don't want to get into that with people, so I don't. So I am very quiet about what I do and I don't advertise and people come to me by word of mouth only because they've heard I can help. And I think in a way it reminds me of what happened to witches and what happened to women who've been healing for years, herbalists and, you know, women who've gone before me. I, you know, I stand on their shoulders knowing that I don't care who sees me doing it. I don't, I don't need somebody to tell me, oh, you need this number or this, these letters after your name to do this work. I know that what I'm doing is important. And I also know that what I'm doing is sometimes scary for people who don't know where it fits because it's not based on rational Western medical beliefs. So coming into that in New Jersey has been quite a learning experience for me. Um, And I don't usually, you know, I won't suggest things to people unless they ask me because I don't want to impose what I think is important and necessary. On anyone um, because it is so outside of the mainstream here even in this day and age it's still outside of the mainstream and I think um, one of the ways that I've developed my practice over the years is being an outsider as a child growing up in a family you know where my mother was really had mental illness and then was physically sick growing up in a family that didn't have English you know spoken so well in the home that was Um, you know we were not part of the mainstream culture so I think in that way I've always developed a sense of wanting to know where I am in space where I am with other people who who can I trust who is going to um, respect and treat me the same way that they treat other people and so I think that gives me you know a leg up in this being able to sit with anybody you know I don't they don't have to look like me they don't have to speak my language I you know i can I can be comfortable with anybody.
1: So I have a question. You spend so many hours a day helping people. Are there daily sort of um, maintenance rituals that you have to help sort of offload all of the you know the not the bad energy, but offload all of the stuff that you take on from everybody else to sort of get you to a place where you can continue to receive and help?
2: That's a funny question, Liz. I, um, I don't ever feel the bad energies, so I get up in the morning, though, and I have a meditation practice that I do every morning where I sit quietly, I say my prayers, which are nothing formal. Um, I reflect on how grateful I am and I call in the spirits before me and my guides and ancestors who can help guide me through the day so that I can be so I can show up as the best person I can be with my gifts really strengthened and so my gifts I think are being present in a non-judgmental way and really inviting the disenfranchised in our community in into my community, which is Chubby's, which is the project, which is in my home, you know, anywhere, in my conversations with people, to really welcome them as a part of the community that we live in, and so that I can see the divine in them, they can see the divine in me, that we have this relationship where, whether it's the person at the post office, whether it's the, you know, the delivery driver, whether it's, I don't care who it is, you know, that I really show up every morning. I, you know, that's what I hope for, that's what I pray for that I can be that person who gets to shine brightly and in hopefully my showing up in this way I'm, you know, adding love more love to the community. I mean, that's really my goal is to have more love in the community. And when somebody is nasty or somebody isn't happy with me or, you know, whatever, I I don't really, maybe I should take it more personally sometimes, but I just think, oh my gosh, they're really having a tough day. I try not to think it's about me necessarily. I, you know, I think, oh my gosh, there's so much going on. How, what do I have to do, you know, to get myself out of a situation or how do I show up in the situation to make it better? Um, and at the end of the day, I go through my gratitude list. I thank all the gods and goddesses that I'm still here and that I have so much to be grateful for. And, May I wake up tomorrow and do it again? So, and I, I mean, as you guys know, I go through the day with lots of energy, and um, <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> maybe <laughs> um, that's my gift. I do have a question to backtrack a little, because we're talking about Chubbies and the project, and like to give a little more, you know, fill in the blanks uh, mm-hmm. information. You were raised in New Jersey, and then you moved to California mm-hmm. after, after Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And you were there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what made you move back to New Jersey? Well, things in California were getting very pricey.
2: And my rent in the clinic I worked went up threefold. And the people I were I was working with, they were retiring early. So part of our deal was if they retired early and wanted to get out of the lease, they would have to give me a big chunk of change. And money has never been my primary focus. But all of a sudden, I had this money And I thought, oh, maybe I should try to buy a place, and I couldn't buy a place in San Francisco. And I came east, and my aunt, was her health was declining, and my dad's health was declining, and my mother had been dead for years. So, and my dad looked at me and goes, maybe you should move back east now. And my sister said, maybe it's time for you to help with people here, you know? And I said, huh, it's an idea. And I looked at one house, and in my usual impulsive way, it had an office in the back, and it had a backyard, and I thought, oh, I could work here. <laughs> I bought the house. <laughs> so one trip east, and I bought a house. <laughs> and so that's where I am now. So that's and what brought me. It
0: wasn't a, a thought out planned trip. It was like, oh, it's time. And then Anchub passed as well, Mm-hmm. and the luncheonette was closed for two years, three years after have... that? Yeah, she,
2: um, she died in the luncheonette. With all of us around her, the dog in her bed, and um, then we, my sisters decided. One sister didn't want it. The other sister didn't want to give it up, but didn't want to really run it. So I thought, I promised her we weren't going to give it up. And um, but I wanted to make it into a community, a place for community, and that's how it came to be. Thanks I mean, to everybody who helped. I mean, I didn't do this on my own by any stretch. I never, you know, I feel like I owe a
0: debt of gratitude. But that's part of what made it into a community spot, right? Like, everybody loved her. She had such an impact. And so when you were like, okay, we're going to make this into something meaningful, a lot of people came in to help because everybody wanted Mm -hmm. that to be, you know, that was a good purpose for everyone. Everyone wanted that to succeed. And people in the community felt really invested in
1: the whole process and I mean I, I think how long has it been open three years now
0: yeah Four we had years. COVID in the middle
1: <laughs> <years with COVID laughs> in the middle um, but I think it's safe to say that it is a huge part of the community now and it very much is a place where people go and feel comfortable and love it and um, all kinds of interesting things go on there and that's
0: not nothing I mean that's a really big deal and during COVID, you started, I mean, I would say from the beginning, there was always like a, and you will tell us more, but you, there was always like, if anyone comes in and they can't afford a meal, they're getting a meal. If you're a fireman mm-hmm. or you're a police officer, you know, that's mm-hmm. on us. And you always took care of the ones that needed help. But then when COVID hit, that's when it really came home for you, right? You were like, okay, mm-hmm. here's where we need to step up.
2: When COVID hit, I think we were given this great opportunity to really um, show the community how we could help as a place of, not only as a place where community convenes, but as a place where we feed people. So we had to bring the food to people. And thankfully, to your ingenious ideas, Olivia, we also made the grocery store happen so that people could get their groceries. and. I wanted to step out of that place of fear and into a place of action because when COVID hit, there was so much fear that I felt we had to really take down a few notches and show people that we were not afraid. We were there for them. We were not afraid of getting sick. We were not afraid of losing our business. We were going to do everything we could to support the people who were less fortunate than we were. and, um, and We had the opportunity because we had a kitchen, we had groceries, we had cooks, we had people who needed employment, and we had people who needed food, and so I think.
0: And the, we're also surrounded by a lot of generous mm-hmm. people that were able to donate. So I think that right, like yes. it was and we just the donations will come in exactly, which you are very good at. But I mean this in a good way, like it is also a gift that you have because it's very hard for a lot of people to ask for help, and you are very good at being humble in that way and be like. I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how to figure this out, or I can't make it on my own. I need help. And that allows other people to step up and be like, okay, I'll, you know, we c- this is how you build community, I guess. I also think it aligns one
2: with the disenfranchised again, right? The more we can be with those people who are on the outside, the people who are at the bottom of the barrel, the people who are, and I don't mean that in a bad way, you know, I just mean the people who are the people who suffer the most, And I think, um, you know, as a child, we were very poor and we were, and I think I have always felt like I could be that person who we are feeding today and that could be me and there, but for the grace of God, you know? And so it's not hard for me to put myself in their shoes. And so when I ask for things, I'm thinking they don't have the voice to ask and I do. And if I didn't ask, it would be a disservice to them. And so, I feel like I'm channeling that, and it, I, I mean, I have never asked for so many things in my life since I got here. I mean, this is the, mo- I have, I am on the floor all the time asking people from,
0: for money, things, equipment. But you've, you've made, you know, you've had an impact in other people's lives. Like, I know when I, when we were, Liz and I were still at Chubby's, we were feeding at least 50 people three days a week. With volunteers that would deliver these meals, with the chefs and the cooks and everyone in the kitchen preparing all of this. And we had even volunteers packing things Mm -hmm. and, you know, other people would come and pick it up and deliver it. Like, and you made all of this. Like, yes, you're always on your knees asking, (laughs) but it's making. I remember at that time with the hype of COVID, there was like all these elders that wouldn't leave their home. And they were hoping and waiting for, you know, the three days of deliveries to see. This is how like yeah, Amanda so. became so close to a lot of like our uh-huh. customers because she would just, she had her favorites. I mean, she loved <laughs> them all, but there were a few that would wait for her. And that's when like also sometimes given, it's more, you know, I mean, as much as it is hard to ask and it's hard to receive, this is the beauty of giving, right? Like you receive more by giving sometimes than by actually receiving.
2: And people don't know how to give. Everybody wants to give. I believe it's in our nature to want to help our neighbor. But we don't have the knowledge. We don't have the resources. We don't know how. And so many of us are afraid to even ask, oh, what do you need? So if we can help point them in that direction like oh you could do a food drive in your neighborhood oh you could deliver meals you could help pack the meals it gives a person purpose greater purpose than just their own their own you know sense of who they are in the world and it connects them i mean we are you know we're social animals we need to connect with each other and our lives these days are so disconnected and we're so tuned into the computers and we're so not having conversations or relationships and I think that's what this project does more than anything is it connects people intentionally with love with generosity and without anybody you know having more power than the other if you will right it's everybody you know from Judy who makes the gifts for people who you know we bring the meals to she makes something for us to give to other people to raise money for the project everybody contributes something back whether it's conversation whether it's information whether it's Who knows what? You know, it could be anything. Well,
0: and I've also seen um, some of the people that received meals at some point then send a letter saying, like, we don't need it anymore. Please send it to somebody else because Mm -hmm. we we were, you know, not in a good place. We're in a better place now. We don't need them anymore. Thank you so much. And this place is not only economic, by the way. Like, sometimes I've seen it. Like, sometimes they have a tragedy in the family or sometimes there's, like, sickness or sometimes Mm -hmm. there's just, you know the house caught on fire, like it's just different situations. And it's not just, I can't afford to pay a meal, which obviously they are on the list if they can't, but there's also all these other mm-hmm. you know, people on the list that just need support and know that they're part of a community.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and to what Lynn was saying, there's this quote from Maledoma um, Sommé in The Healing Wisdom of Africa, What is required for the maintenance and growth of a community is not corporate altruism or a government program, but a village-like atmosphere that allows people to drop their masks. A sense of community growth where behavior is based on trust and where no one has to hide anything. And I think this has been a theme going through our conversation with Lynn today, this idea of just being present with each other without masks on and how... Tricky that can be to find in the world we live in right now, and so how much more meaningful it is when it does happen
2: mm-hmm. and I think that people who have more their masks have to be removed as well because if they're going to show up hundred percent right <laughs> I mean this is the the hardest thing for me is as you guys know, the management, the administrative parts, the numbers, the counting, I mean, I could care less about the number of people we feed, but we have to do that to make it work, right? But that quote speaks to the spirit of the project and to the spirit of how I try to live every day, you know, like, how am I gonna be a contributing member of this community that I live in? How can I show up where people know, you know, that I can be reached if they need me? And and people know my door is open, and I never know who I'm going to find at my house, and so or at Chubby's, and <laughs> <laughs> and you know this is important. I mean, yesterday I was given a note that one of the um, a friend of one of the women that we deliver lunches to donated a thousand dollars to the project because she said her friend was explaining how grateful she was that every week, somebody would show up at her door without ever, she never had to ask, and she just knew it was gonna happen. And she was then sent to rehab and how much she missed the daily contact. And she said she couldn't wait to get back home to see her friends who would, and her friends were different every week. You know, She never had the same person deliver her meal, but she became, she trusted people more and she came alive for you know, the first time in years and years. So that's the gift.
0: You came like full circle because now you're in touch with like all of the priests and priestess from the area, right? hmm You all work together, mm-hmm. talking about building community, to like help the community. And that, I think, it's pretty magical of the town that we live in. Like, oh, it's remarkable. All the churches work together.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's remarkable that they invited us, the Chubby's Project, onto the council of churches we're the only non-church secular organization that's ever been invited to join as a full-fledged member and to me that's exciting because we are the church of chubbies sort of you know we're a non-church church church, right and there is no patriarchy and there is no (laughs) hierarchy and there is you know we show up we do our work and i don't think they know what to do with us you know they're happy to support us they're so grateful and I am so grateful that they are open and
0: willing to work with us in such a beautiful way and the council of churches is made of the every parish in town yep
2: yeah
1: and what's amazing to me is how they they all work together and how they really like they just want good for this community and Mm -hmm. in a way that all followers of Jesus should, mm-hmm. but in a way that doesn't always get manifested. And I, I think it's truly remarkable. It really is.
2: Well, and they recognize that not everyone wants to join organized religion um, practices now. And so that we can accommodate those people who still want to love their neighbors without Jesus guiding them. Yeah. Whether they're Buddhists, Jews, Muslims you know, Zoroastrians, I don't care who they are. They can still love their neighbors and be part of the community. So there's a place for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. There can be a place for everybody.
1: Thank you for all the work you do. It's really stunning. And I want to know, how do you think that the next generation, our daughters, what would you say to them to help them know that they can claim their power, the good power that we've been
2: talking about,
1: right? What do you say to the little women?
2: I say to them, be true to yourself, show up, don't worry about what other people think, ask questions, be curious, and go with an open heart. And give up status, give up, you know, give up the place, like there's so much placement of where people stand and who they stand with so just you know to have the courage to stand on their own thank you lynn we love you oh thanks for coming this is perfect thank you first guest done